Let me pray for us as we open God's Word together this evening. Father, we confess as we come before you tonight that we do not view this book, as many do, as an old dusty volume, fantasyful, mystical tales from previous ages. We view this word as truth, and we sit under this truth this evening. We believe that it is breathed out by you, that as this word is read and as it is preached, that you are indeed speaking to us. So we pray that you would give us ears of faith and hearts of faith this evening, that we would receive your word, that you would teach us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 through 28, this is the holy and errant word of God. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. So the grass withers, the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. I was thinking, reading on this text earlier this week, that Peter, when he was there in Acts and he was speaking to the Pharisees, that he was not the first to say that we must obey God rather than men. Many that have come before him, you see that here even in the text this evening, Moses' parents, they don't say it with words, but they do say it with actions here in the text as the writer of Hebrews is reflecting back on the story in Exodus. When Pharaoh demanded the absolutely unthinkable when he commanded the sinful, they, they wouldn't obey. They would obey God rather than obey men. We see here that the writer of Hebrews says that they hid Moses for three months, and his parents did. If you think back to Exodus, we're told that his mother hid him for three months, but the writer of Hebrews here, he's taking the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, which says that it was Moses' parents, both of them, that hid him for three months. And we're told that they hid him for three months because they found him to be beautiful or attractive. And I think that must be more than the fact that he was just a good-looking kid. Uh, I think, as many will also conjecture is that they had some sense or some idea that 
Moses was going to be used by the Lord in a way to redeem his people. And in this way, they found this son born of them, from them, to be beautiful. And so they hid him. If it cost their lives, they would yield their own lives rather than take this life that was being required from them. It's interesting, I think, and it's interesting, especially in the midst of what we are living in today increasingly. What do you do when the commands of God seem to be in contrast with one another? God commands, thou shalt not murder. He equally commands, honor thy father and thy mother. And of course, these commandments will be written in stone with Moses when he is older in age, but they are always there. That summary of the moral law, what we call the Ten Commandments, has always been in the world. It has been what we would call part of natural law or the lexus naturalis is what theologians have often called it, that universal sense that you and I have of right and of wrong. Western jurisprudence is built upon this and has imbibed this over the years, though it's being destroyed more and more in our generation. We know instinctively, you and I know by our conscience and in our heart that we are not to murder. We also know instinctively that we are to honor those that are in authority over us. We are to honor our mothers and our fathers. It didn't need to be told to us in the moral law. We knew it just naturally, but it is articulated by God in the moral law and the Ten Commandments. In some sense, it's always been on the heart of all people. Paul will say that in Romans 2, verses 14 and 15. He makes this point. When Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. However, if we simply think of the moral law, the Ten Commandments, summarize the moral law that is binding on all people at all times and all places, I think the Westminster Confession is right when it begins to tackle this fifth commandment, honor thy father and thy mother. They say that it provides the grounds for honoring all people in authority. So the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 124, asks this, who are meant by father and mother in the fifth commandment? And the answer is, by father and mother in the fifth commandment are meant not only natural parents, but all superiors in age and gifts, and especially such as by God's ordinance are over us in a place of authority, whether in family, church, or commonwealth, meaning the state. In question 127, to skip ahead a little bit, they ask this question, what is the honor that inferiors owe to their superiors in light of the fifth commandment? And the answer includes among other things, a willing obedience to their lawful commands and counsels. If we go to question 128, they ask, what are the sins of inferiors against the superiors? And the answer is, the sins of inferiors against their superiors are all neglect of the duties required toward them, um, and then they list a bunch of other things. 
But then in question 130, they ask this, what are the sins of superiors, those that are over us? And the answer is this. The sins of superiors are, besides the neglect of the duties required of them, an inordinate seeking of themselves, their own glory, ease, profit, or pleasure, and then this, commanding things unlawful. We're not in the power of inferiors to perform. Counseling, encouraging, or favoring them in that which is evil. Dissuading, discouraging, or discountenancing them in that which is good. Correcting them unduly, careless, exposing, or leaving them to wrong, to temptation, and to danger. Provoking them to wrath, meaning God's wrath or any way dishonoring themselves or lessening their authority by an unjust, indiscreet, rigorous, or remiss behavior. When the superior commands something that is unlawful for the inferior to do, they abuse their power and they commit sin. How is it that a governing authority can institute something that is unlawful. Aren't they the one that makes the law? Well, we go back to the very beginning. There is a law above the law that all are under, regardless of their position, and that law doesn't change. Laws of a land can change. I confess to being personally disappointed this week that Oregon legalized heroin and cocaine. That's horrific. The law governing these drugs was changed. But the moral law that governs this world, what is summarized in the Ten Commandments, even what is known by our conscience and our hearts according to natural law, that never changes. And so the moral law binds all people in all places at all times, regardless of their person, regardless of their place, regardless of their position. And so Moses' parents chose to obey God rather than men. They were not, the writer of Hebrews tells us, afraid of the king's edict because they were afraid of a higher edict, God Almighty's. And the writer of Ecclesiastes explores every reason and purpose and way of living. He gets to the conclusion of that book after what feels like torturous chapters as you're reading through it, and he's wrestling through different things, and he has this great summary at the end. It's a thing worth memorizing. It's a thing worth reminding yourself of and living by. He says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. He's explored everything. Is this, fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep his commandments. He then says, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And this we now see in the life of Moses as detailed by the writer of Hebrews here. He gives us three by faiths. So verses 24 through 26, then Verse 27 and the verse 28, he's told us of the faith of his parents. Now he's going to tell us of the faith of Moses in three ways. In verse 24 through 26, he shows us that by faith, Moses chose God's commendation 
over worldly prestige. He chose God's commendation over worldly prestige. Think of Moses. He is the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He is the grandson of Pharaoh, who is the mightiest sovereign in the world at this time. And so at his disposal was power, at his disposal was wealth, at his disposal was position and influence. And surely most, if not all of us, would have encouraged Moses to to use that for the benefit of God's people to stay in such a position? Could he not do more for God and the people of God by keeping his position? This is the argument that is often made in our circles, and many of us, I think, will have to wrestle with this in the years and the decades ahead as our society turns more Egyptian in the sense of hostile to our faith, the people of the true faith. Why lose that position? Couldn't you do more in that position, that place of influence in the government or in the hospital administration or in that non-for-profit or in that for-profit? Couldn't you do more by leading in those realms? Can't you do more good by willing to swallow a little evil and just wink at a little evil? This isn't a perfect world. Christ's kingdom, as we saw this morning, hasn't been consummated yet, and so we are going to have to make hard decisions. Isn't it just better if you're in a place of influence and position and possible power that you just swallow a little of the evil so you can do more good? Sense only gets heightened when we read uh, Philo. Philo was um, a Jewish philosopher. Philo, Philo, depends who you listen to, how they pronounce it. But Philo was a Jewish philosopher that existed before Christ. And he writes in his volume that was often used around this time that Moses was, in fact, the only son of Pharaoh's daughter. And Pharaoh's daughter was the only child of Pharaoh. So Philo made the argument that Moses was to inherit the throne of Egypt. Now, the Old Testament writers never make anything of this. The New Testament writers never make anything of this. But even if it had been the case, Moses wouldn't compromise. The influence was not worth it. The position was not enough. The the power for him was not sufficient. I think there are a few more powerful testimonies in the Scripture than of faith than what we read in verses 25 and 26 regarding Moses, the reproach, the disgrace, the, that is the insult, the injury, the suffering was greater wealth to him than all the treasures of Egypt. To be identified with God's people and to be identified and suffer for Christ was more precious to him than all the quantity and all the qualities of all the treasures that Egypt could offer to him. And they were all at his fingertips. Having the favor of God is better than all the flavors of the world. He chose suffering as better than wealth. Now that's countercultural no matter what age you live in. 
think when we read of this considering the reproach of Christ, greater wealth, I think there's more here than simply suffering for Christ that's being conveyed here. He considered the reproach of Christ. And isn't that fascinating? Christ. Moses is looking forward to Christ. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth. You'll remember that the way of faith is a way of suffering. The Christ, the anointed one, would both be king and he would be the suffering servant, as we saw in our passage this morning. And so Moses could see, like Christ, he could see beyond that present suffering to the glory that was beyond. And he did, as verse 27 says, he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He looked to God in Christ. And so there's not just a suffering for Christ, I don't think, but there's a a suffering here with Christ. He's united with Christ. When it speaks of that reproach of Christ, it, it isn't just suffering for his Savior, it is suffering with his Savior. There's an identification with him. And I find that exceedingly helpful and of great comfort. We're united to Christ, and so as we suffer, we don't just suffer for Him, we, we suffer with Him. Paul has always struck me in there in Colossians where he says that, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, speaking to the Colossians. I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, for I am filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of the body. That is, he sees his suffering as for the people of God, but it's not just that. He's also suffering for Christ, but he's also suffering with Christ. He's filling up the afflictions of Christ's body. That is the appointed amount of afflictions that the body of Christ must endure before Christ returns. He's suffering with Christ so that when Jesus calls out to Saul on that road to Damascus, he will say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When the church was being persecuted, when it was suffering, they were suffering with Christ because they're united to Christ. And for me, that... That takes suffering to a whole nother plane. It's one thing to suffer for him, but to be encouraged that I'm suffering with him. I'm united to him. There's an identification with Christ in our suffering. I think it's easy, though, to read this choice of Moses's and think very little of it. We know the story. We know how it ends. But in one sense, Moses didn't. He didn't know how this would end. Decisions like this are never easy. I'm going to choose the way of suffering. I'm going to choose the way of pursuing Christ in this moment rather than these pleasures. Notice that the writer of Hebrews says they are pleasures. They're just fleeting pleasures. And Moses has no clue how this is going to end. He doesn't know that this is going to end and what we would deem as a kind of success where he leads the nation out of Egypt and he becomes the great prophet and this great man of God in the Old Testament. He doesn't know that at this point. 
All he knows is that he is to take the next step in faith. And that's how God always works. He doesn't show you the whole path. He doesn't show you the conclusion of everything and every step along the way. He just asks you to take the next step in faith. That's what faith is. And Moses takes it. This is one of the reasons he is the great man, great example of faith to us in the Scriptures. Notice his great motivation in doing so. He's willing to take that next step of faith because of the eternal reward. By doing such, and by willing such, and considering and choosing such. He knew that what awaited him far exceeded what this world could promise to him and give to him. He knew it by faith. And so he chooses. Paul echoes this sentiment when he says in Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. God's con commendation over worldly prestige. In verse 27, we see that by faith, Moses chooses God's promise over worldly power. God's promise over worldly power. He looked to God who is invisible. And then there's a little bit of disagreement here about what he is doing here and this leaving, this leaving that he has from Egypt in this verse where he is looking to God who is invisible. What is this leaving of Egypt of Moses here? Is he leaving here when he leaves Egypt and he goes out into the wilderness of Midian after he has killed the, the soldier in Pharaoh's army and he goes out into the wilderness of Midian? Is that what is being spoken about here? Or is it rather that he is leaving Egypt when he is leading out the Israelites out in the Exodus, I think that he is looking to the invisible God. It is referring to the former rather than the later that he is leaving and going out into the wilderness of Midian. I think that makes most sense in the context because the Passover follows this verse and that would turn things in a reverse order. The Exodus before the Passover, that doesn't happen that way. Passover precedes the Exodus. So I think what the writer of Hebrews is referring to here is Moses leaving Egypt for the Midian wilderness. But here's the problem, if you take that view, is that we read here that he was not afraid of the anger of the king. That that wasn't his reason for leaving Egypt. And yet, when we go to Exodus 2, we read that that is very much part of Moses' makeup. He is very afraid. It says this, Surely this thing is known when Pharaoh heard of it. He sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and staying in the land of Medium. So how do we make sense of this, what the writer of Hebrews is saying here, that he didn't leave out of fear of Pharaoh? Well, I think that's true. He doesn't leave. It isn't the motivating factor for why he leaves fear of Pharaoh. Was he afraid? Yes, but that's not the motivating factor for leaving. He, by this act of murder, could have, much like Jesus in our text this morning, could have led a rebellion and have thrown off the yoke of 
the Egyptians by leading a kind of slave rebellion, but he chose to leave, as one commentator said, because he, quote, had the insight to see that God's hour had not yet struck. And therefore, he resolutely turned his back on the course he had begun to tread and retraced his steps till he entered on the harder way, for it was harder to live for his people than it was to die for them. Just flipped from Jesus, but much like Jesus in our text this morning, he saw the wisdom of waiting. This was not yet the time. And so he's not going to lead a rebellion of the people. He's not going to seek to overthrow the Egyptians at this time because this wasn't God's time. And so he's patient in wisdom. By faith, Moses chose God's promise over worldly power. Finally, in verse 28, we see that by faith, Moses chose God's way over worldly unbelief. He chose God's way over worldly unbelief. It's interesting to think that Moses runs from Pharaoh, this earthly king, and he runs, in many ways, we could say, into the arms of God, the heavenly king. But there's a sense... As we see this, in which you and I are to recognize and notice that even as this earthly king was unsafe, so this heavenly king is unsafe. He can be just as threatening or even more so than the earthly king of Pharaoh. His wrath is even greater. His pursuit is even more consistent and conclusive. His judgment, we could say, is even more terrible. But he is also a sovereign of greater mercy. And this, Moses and the nation are led to understand. Lest that they think that Pharaoh pursuing his own people to death was just like God, that God would pursue his people to death. He appoints the Passover. God appoints the Passover so that they might know that he has made a way for his own. And his wrath is tenacious, but his mercy is even more so. And so we're told by faith, Moses obeys the command. He observes the Passover and sprinkles the blood so that the destroyer would not touch him. He looks in faith to be covered over. And yet, they weren't out of Egypt yet. And so they continued to wait. They, they had a taste of his mercy, a literal taste. And yet, they didn't have it in all that it was yet. They were to wait. They didn't have it in full. And that requires faith. We've been delivered, and yet we have to wait. And so we continue to have faith. We've been covered over by the blood of the Lamb, just like these Jews in the Passover. And yet, they weren't out of Egypt yet, and so they had to be patient and wait in faith. And so we, we have been covered over by the blood of the Lamb as Christians who have placed our faith in Christ, and yet we're still not fully out of Egypt. We've been set free. The bonds have been set free. We are no longer chained. But heaven on earth has not yet come. So, like Moses, we will be tempted, and so we are to choose God's commendation over worldly prestige. We are to choose God's promise over worldly power, 
We are to choose God's way over worldly unbelief. We have a Savior who beckons us, a Savior who calls us, a Savior who leads us, and a Savior who promises us a great reward. I want you just to see finally here that Moses was a type and a foreshadowing of Christ. God made that clear to Moses back in Deuteronomy chapter 15 that he told Moses, he said, I will raise up a prophet like you. And you saw that even in our text this morning, that the Jews, when they were asking, who is this man? They said, he is a prophet. They saw him as the great prophet to come after Moses and this one that God was raising up. And this is clearly seen in that Christ was he who God chose to communicate through to his people. He came as a deliverer and a redeemer, just like Moses. Yet before delivering God's people, he himself had to be delivered from the hands of a sovereign who would seek to take his life in infancy, just like Moses. Moses left the power and the position and the prestige of the palace, and so Christ left the heavens, made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Even as Moses led the people out of bondage, bondage in Egypt and led them to the promised land, so Jesus leads his people out of bondage and sinful Egypt and leads them to the promised land. And even as Moses was willing to be mistreated and receive reproach rather than the treasures of Egypt, so Jesus willingly was despised and mistreated and received reproach rather than all the glories of this world that the devil could tempt him with. By faith, Jesus looked to his reward. And his reward is our reward. We are co-inheritors with him. We reign and rule with him. And the reward is great. I'm going to read it to you. I was debating whether to read this to you tonight. It is worth it. We have a few minutes. So I want to read this to you. Remember Leah coming to me one day and uh, she said, she said, I keep reading, she's reading different Puritans, and they were citing a book by Richard Baxter called The Saints Everlasting Rest, and she said, ah, oh, I think I should probably read that. They so often quote it. She said, do you have that book? I said, I do, and so I brought it upstairs, and she said, ah, maybe I won't read that. The Saints Everlasting Rest. But all Richard Baxter is doing in The Saints Everlasting Rest is showing you and I the glories of heaven. And what it is that is promised to us and how to meditate upon it and what to look forward to. This is worth it. So try and listen. I just want to read a page and a half to you about what he says it will look like for you and I in heaven. Our eternal reward is worth pursuing. Before, a saint was weak and despised, so full of pride and peevishness and other sins that we could scarce oftentimes discern their graces. But now, how glorious a thing is a saint. Where is now their body of sin which wearied themselves and those about them? Where are now our different judgments, our reproachful titles, interesting from our text, 
Our divided spirits, our exasperated passions, our strange looks, our uncharitable censures. Now we are all of one judgment, of one name, of one heart, of one house, and of one glory. O sweet reconcilement, O happy union, which makes us first to be one with Christ and then to be one among ourselves. Now our differences shall be dashed in our teeth no more, nor the gospel reproach through our folly or scandal. O my soul, thou shalt never more lament the sufferings of the saints, never more condole the church's ruins, never bewail thy suffering friends, nor lie wailing over their deathbeds or their graves. Thou shalt never suffer thy old temptations from Satan, the world, or thy own flesh. The body will no more be a burden to thee. Thy pains and sicknesses are all now cured. Thou shalt be troubled with weakness and weariness no more. Thy head is not now an aching head, nor thy heart now an aching heart. Thy hunger and thirst and cold and sleep, thy labor and study are all gone. Students will appreciate that. Oh, what a mighty change is this. From the dunghill to the throne, from persecuting sinners to praising saints, from a body as vile as the carrion in the ditch to a body as bright as the sun in the firmament, from complainings under the displeasure of God to the perfect enjoyment of Him in love, from all my doubts and fears of my condition to this possession which hath put me out of doubt, from all my fearful thoughts of death to this most blessed, joyful life. Oh, what a blessed change is this. Farewell, sin and suffering forever. Farewell, my hard and rocky heart. Farewell, my proud and unbelieving heart. Farewell, atheistical, idolatrous, worldly heart. Farewell, my sensual, carnal heart. And now welcome, most holy, heavenly nature, which as it must be employed in beholding the face of God, so is it full of God alone and delighteth in nothing else but Him. Oh, who can question the love which he doth so sweetly taste, or doubt of that which such joy he feeleth? Farewell, repentance, confession, and supplication. Farewell, the most of hope and faith, and welcome love and joy and praise. I shall now have my harvest without plowing or sowing, my wine without the labor of the vintage, my joy without a preacher or a promise, even all from the face of God himself. That is the sight that is worth the seeing. That is the book that is worth the reading. Whatever mixture in the streams, there is nothing but pure joy in this fountain. Here shall I be encircled with eternity. And come forth no more. Here shall I live and ever live and praise my Lord and ever and ever and ever praise him. My face will not wrinkle nor my hair be gray, but this mortal shall have put on immortality and the corruptible incorruption. The death shall be swallowed up in victory. O death, where is now thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? 
The date of my lease will no more expire, nor shall I trouble myself with thoughts of death, nor lose my joys through fear of losing them. When millions of ages are past, my glory is but beginning. And when millions more are past, it is no nearer ending. Every day is all noontide, and every month is May or harvest, and every year is there a jubilee, and every age is full of manhood, and all this is one eternity. Oh, blessed eternity, the glory of my glory, the perfection of my perfection. The glories that await us. Fleeting pleasures of sin and this life, the temptations that are offered to us, Nothing compared to what awaits us in glory. Would you look to him in faith and seek him who is invisible above? Let's pray. Our Father, we have not seen you, we believe in you. We know you, we love you, we long for you. We pray that you would set our eyes on glory and that we would labor as pilgrims in this world filled with faith, looking forward to that day when our faith shall be sight and there will no longer be the need for faith. But we shall just be caught up in love. We long for it and we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We long for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.